Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hi everyone, welcome to our lesson today. Uh, Today we will be studying uh, Come Follow Me, the lessons for May 20th through the 26th. Uh, This covers the chapters of Matthew uh, 21 through 23. Mark 11, Luke 19 through 20, and John 12. All right, so we begin, and we're actually going to start, as we go through, we're going to start in John 12. Um, And it begins with the story of Mary anointing Christ. Um, Mark 14 tells us that uh, this took place at the home of Simon, who was a leper. Um, And what she does here is she takes a very... Uh, expensive ointment um, that they refer to as uh, spikenard. Uh, verse 3 in John 12 says it's very costly. And she anoints the Savior's feet, wipes them with her hair to dry it, um, and soon the whole house is filled uh, with this odor of the ointment. Uh, what she does here, we need to understand, is very, very richly symbolic. It's something that would be done for a king. It's something that would have huge significance and enormous sign of respect, much more than you would do for any guest that enters your house. And so Mary here, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, who was just raised from the dead. Uh, What she does here is a sign of deep devotion and deep respect and deep love for the Savior. Interestingly, Judas then sees this act, and he is a little put off, and he says, shouldn't we have sold this for 300 pence, which is a large sum of money, and given that to the poor? Um, And Christ's uh, response, uh, well, we learn that uh, he said he did this not because he cared for the poor, but John, in fact, calls him a thief, and that he had the bag. He was the the treasurer of the of the twelve. He was the one in charge of their finances and in charge of their money. Um, So he didn't care for the poor, according to John, who is clear has no love loss for Judas. Uh, John says that he's a thief and he only did it for his own very selfish reasons. Uh, Now it's interesting to note uh, that the same story appears in in Mark 14. That's where we learn that it uh, happens at the home of Simon the leper. And in that story, Mark is silent as to who exactly it was that was complaining about the value of this ointment. So we can see Mark is a little more discreet here, but John is not discreet. He's, <laughs> he calls out Judas. He lets everyone know this is Judas and he's a thief. Um, but interestingly, right after Mark's account, even though Mark doesn't call him out, Mark is the one uh, that then says right after he leaves that, Judas goes... Um, Uh, seeks the religious leaders and openly betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Um, Now, this story probably sounds very similar to another story in Luke 7 about a woman who 
uh, comes to uh, the Savior. Uh, the same Simon, there's also an individual named Simon involved in that story. Um, and she also anoints the Savior's feet and dries them with her hair. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Luke is the only one that gives that account. And he does it much earlier in his record. Whereas uh, this account, where we, and in Luke's account, we don't know who did that. But in this account, we know that it was Mary. And this account appears both in Matthew, Luke, and, uh, sorry, Matthew, Mark, uh, and, and John. Um, and it happens at a similar time, much later, much closer to Christ's, uh, to, to the last week. So oftentimes we get the two stories conflated. It's not perfectly clear from the record whether or not these are in fact the same story. Um, interestingly, in the Luke account, the woman is specifically identified as being a sinner. We're not told exactly what her sin is, but it's for those reasons that many identify Mary as being someone who is a sinner. In a lot of other Christian traditions, they uh, deem Mary, and they often conflate her with Mary Magdalene, as being a harlot, um, conflating these two stories. But that, that, that's, that's an extrapolation of the record. The record actually doesn't give us that details. As far as we can tell, it's actually two separate accounts, uh, two separate women. But in this case, it was Mary who did this, who anoints the Savior. And of course, this happens right before uh, he leaves for Jerusalem uh, to participate in the Passover festivities and, of course, culminating uh, in his trial and, and, and later death. Um, so, uh, interesting story that, that begins this account, and that, uh, that happens in John 12. Um, we turn from John 12, then. Uh, the way we're going to do it today is to largely follow the Matthew record. Uh, so let's flip over to Matthew, and we're going to start in 21. So after he has, he has dined with this family and, and stayed with this family that, uh, that he loves deeply, uh, composed of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, those are the three that, that we know, he goes from there uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, interestingly, he decides that the way he needs to enter Jerusalem is by sitting upon a colt, a young, a young donkey. Um, and so he instructs his disciples to go to a certain place, tells them that there they will find a, a colt, uh, that he'll be, he'll be tied, and you need to loose the colt, and then the, someone will ask you, what are you doing? Why are you taking my colt? And he'll say, and your response will be, uh, the king cometh and he needs it. Uh, the, the Lord hath need of them, is the, is the wording in Matthew t uh, 21, verse 3. The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them, so he will let you take them. Uh, interesting that he could just take this colt, and the owner, as soon as he uh, is told that it's for the Savior, needs this, uh, will, will allow this colt to be taken. Um, <clears throat> and so they bring this colt, the Savior sits upon it as he enters Jerusalem. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, those that, uh, that bring the colt, they put their clothes on the colt and set the Savior on their clothes. Uh, I, I personally find that a little bit curious. Did they have extra clothes with them uh, that they're bringing with them? Or did they actually take off the clothes that they were wearing, put it on the animal, and let the Savior sit upon the animal? We also learned that they put their clothes on the path that the donkey was walking on. So that not only is the Savior sitting upon their clothes, but the animal itself is walking on their clothes. 
a deep sign of respect. And of course, as he enters the city, uh, they also spread out uh, branches from the trees. These are palm branches. Um, and, in, and in verse 9 in the Matthew account, they said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Hosanna being an expression that means please save us. A, a, an indication of uh, both recognition uh, that you're in need of salvation, recognition that you need something to save you, and also a recognition that uh, the person that you're expressing this to is capable of providing that salvation. Um, of course, this is the same expression that we use as we dedicate our temples. And we say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Um, please save us. That's what Hosanna means. Um, so as he enters into Jerusalem, the whole city is moved. Everyone is curious. Who is this guy? Who is coming? Of course, Christ has been outside of Jerusalem, largely performing his miracles. And so as he enters the city, many within Jerusalem are not familiar with Christ. And so those that the multitude, those that are following Christ, say in verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Um, so after he enters the city, um, it's not clear exactly uh, the timeline. The, the, the accounts differ a little bit. And that's worth noting because we'll see here that the accounts are different. Um, we, we, of course, have the, uh, the three uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whose accounts are largely similar. They largely tell the same stories. And then sometimes even the wording is almost identical. Uh, a lot of people think that they must have drawn from the same source themselves. Well, as John, his gospel is completely different. Um, but even within the synoptic gospels, even assuming that's right, that they all take, they all come from one single source, you can see there's a lot of discrepancies within them. Um, some people might see that and say, you know, why are there so many discrepancies? If this was all true, uh, then shouldn't they be following the same, same timetable? Well, given that this happened so long ago, given uh, the lack of records that we actually have, uh, I personally think that the fact that these accounts, even though they're largely similar, but differ in some of the small details, uh, is an indication of their authenticity. An indication that these are actual accounts written by people that were there, and they remember different things. But even though they remember different things, their record is largely the same. They all agree on the big things, even if their memory of the little things is different. And of course, I believe this is consistent with human behavior, right? We can largely agree on the large things uh, as we think back in our lives, even though sometimes the details, sometimes the timing, what comes next becomes a little bit fuzzy. And, and the accounts here uh, certainly are that way. Um, so, so we're going to assume, uh, for our purposes, that after Christ enters uh, Jerusalem, um, he doesn't stay there the night. In fact, we have no record of Christ spending a single night in Jerusalem. Um, but the next morning, as he's on his way back into the city, this is the, the next day, um, it, we, he, he finds this tree. And so here we are uh, in verse 17. Um, so he's come out of Bethany where he was staying. And so he returns to Jerusalem and he's hungry. He hasn't eaten breakfast yet. So he sees uh, this tree, this fig tree, full of leaves. 
which should be an indication that there are figs growing on the tree. And he looks and he doesn't find any. And so as a result of that, he curses the tree um, and says that it will never bear fruit. And here again, we have a, a different accounts based on the record. Uh, in the Matthew example, in the Matthew account, uh, the tree withers and dies uh, pretty much immediately. Um, in, the, uh, in the Mark account, uh, they come back the next day and find that the tree uh, has died. Um, so, again, different story, different telling of the details, but the, the focus is the same, and, that's, and then the lesson is the same. And that's what we should be worried about. We shouldn't be worried about the details. And the lesson is this tree put forth signs that it should have fruit, uh, but it didn't. This tree was a hypocrite. And this tree suffers from the same sin that Christ spends all of Matthew 23 deriding the religious leaders of his time for. Again, that is the sin of hypocrisy, that of showing the world that you have something meaningful, showing the world that you have fruit that is worth partaking of. But upon further uh, inspection, only to show that you have no fruit, you only have the signs, but you lack the actual content, you lack the actual material, there's actually nothing there uh, that's worth getting exciting about, excited about, even though you, you show all of the signs. And so because of that, Christ curses the tree. Uh, and so at this point, we'll spend just a few, uh, a few moments going through Matthew 23, where he calls out uh, the religious leaders of his time for their great hypocrisy. Uh, Matthew 23, um, he, 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 he chides them for the, uh, in verse 4, he bind, they bind them with heavy burdens that are grievous to be borne. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move. Uh, move them with one of their fingers. Uh, verse 3, he introduces this. He says, Whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. So he says, they're teaching you good things. They're telling you to do the right things. But they themselves are hypocrites. They're not doing any of it themselves. They're not uh, coming unto salvation uh, themselves. Uh, verse 13, They shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye that they are entering to go in. So they're not only not helping, they're hurting. They're preventing people from drawing closer to their Father in Heaven, from returning to their Father in Heaven. So not only are they themselves not going in, they're making it difficult for other people to go in as well. Verse 24, he calls them blind guides, saying that they strain at a gnat, yet swallow a camel. I mean, what powerful imagery. Think of a gnat, how small that is. The idea that they strain at that. It's hard for them to, to, to get that into their system. They cannot accept these small little gnats. But a camel, well, we can take that one down. And so they get focused on these little tiny things they get so upset about. But these big sins, oh, they, they're able to look past those. And I think it's worth us uh, thinking about them uh, as members of, of, of the church. You know, how often do we focus on, on the gnats? Um, focus on the little things, or sometimes letting the big things, serving others, uh, using of our time to bless other people, forgiving others, not judging others. You know, 
helping others to, to progress and, and of course just, just loving others, exercising charity. Um, those, those camels, those big important things, do we let those go and maybe we focus on, on whether or not someone is dressed appropriately, uh, whether or not uh, they're, they're uh, you know, whether or not, think of a thousand different things, how they behave in church, how their kids are behaving. Can think of so many different standards that we have set, uh, different hedges that we've put in place. Uh, do we sometimes fall in the trap of behaving uh, like the Pharisees? Um, certainly something that we need to think about. Um, and then in verse 38, uh, the ultimate curse, uh, your house is left unto you desolate. Your house is going to, is empty. There is nothing there. Much like the fig tree lacked any fruit, because of its own hypocrisy. They themselves uh, were lacking in fruit. They didn't have anything there. Uh, there was nothing there for them, nothing there for anyone else because of their own hypocrisy. Um, and so they, they fell into the same trap. Uh, and how careful we need to be to, to avoid that, to make sure our houses are not desolate, that we are not barren like the fig, like the fig tree. Okay, so after he curses the fig tree, um, he's, he's, I guess, kind of feeling it today. So he starts off the day by cursing the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple. And then for the second time, um, he cleanses the temple. The first account, uh, it's interesting to note, the first account in John 2, um, he goes about and uh, re releases the animals and he cleanses it. And he refers to it as his father's house. Okay. My father's house is not a house of merchandise. Um, but this time, he refers to it as my house. So we can see he's, uh, he's accepting his role. He's growing into his role as the Savior. As he begins his ministry, uh, he, again, this temple is referred to as his father's house, but he's, he's now recognizing that this is his house. And he's testifying that this is his house, <clears throat> and that uh, it's his obligation to cleanse it and to keep it pure. And so for a second time, he cleanses the temple. And as soon as it's over, though, um, uh, as soon as it's over, as soon as he's done cleansing it, in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So this cleansing process, this, again, somewhat destructive process, this painful process in which he's flipping over tables um, and flipping over the seats of those that are selling the doves, this cleansing process is immediately followed by the process of healing. The blind and the lame come to him seeking this healing, and he provides that to them. And of course, the chief, the chief priests and the scribes, when they saw the wonderful things he did, this is interesting, they see the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. And how did they react? Oh, they were sore displeased. And even they actually say to Jesus, do you hear what people are saying? Do you hear what they're saying about you? They're praising you. They're saying Hosanna to you. Hosanna to the Son of David. And Christ says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. That is, uh, that, that, there's uh, reciting scriptures to them, uh, reminding them, 
yes, this is exactly what the children are saying. They're praising me because they see something in me that you are incapable of seeing. Um, and then next we go to, uh, starting in verse 23, we get this interesting fight uh, about authority. Um, some interesting, uh, interesting things to note here. Um, <clears throat> so the Pharisees, uh, they come to him and they say, verse 23, By what authority dost, doest these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus refuses to answer them. And his, instead of answering them directly, he turns around and asks them a question. And we see this is something he's starting to do towards the end of his ministry as he's ready to kind of wind down the conversation, to, to, to kill the conversation and move on. <clears throat> he says in verse 25, The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they realize that they're trapped here. So they reason among themselves and they say, If we shall say it's from heaven... And he'll say, then why did you not believe him? Why didn't you believe John? If you believe that this, this actually comes from, that, that John actually was a teacher from heaven. Because, of, of course, John, the son of Zacharias, who was uh, the priest sanctioned to go into the temple and perform the sacred temple rites, John, as his son, has authority, has the same authority that they do. So if they say, well, why didn't you recognize John's authority? If they denounce John's authority, they're denouncing their own authority themselves. And so they certainly can't do that. But of course, Christ, uh, John also testified of Christ. And so they say, uh, if we say that John's authority is of men, we fear the people, they'll be mad at us. And where does our authority come from? Because all hold John as a prophet. So in verse 26, it's recognized that John has that authority and that even more so, even he's, he's recognized as a prophet. Um, and if they say it is from heaven, then they'll say, "Then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe his testimony of me?" So they're trapped. They recognize they're trapped here. They can't say his authority is from heaven or of men, because either way, that won't uh, result well for them. And so they say, "We can't tell you these things. We don't. We're not going to answer that." And Christ says, "Okay, fine. Neither am I going to answer." So we see here an interesting way in which Christ. Uh, is a, uh, sorry, in which John is a forerunner of Christ. He paves the way for Christ in that he comes in authority, he testifies of Christ, and he sets the road for Christ. He's the trailblazer. He's out in front. He's the, he's the fullback doing the blocking uh, for Christ so that Christ can come after him, so that people can believe in John and by believing in John, he gives Christ, and, and John therefore gives legitimacy to Christ because of his authority. Um, and then, so after that, uh, Christ then gives the parable of uh, of two sons. One of them says, "His father." Well, the father says to the sons, "Please go work in my vineyard." One says, "Okay, I'll go," but doesn't. The second one says, "I'm not going," but at the end of the day, he actually does. And so uh, Christ asked the simple question, uh, which one did the will of his father? And of course the answer is the one that actually went, even though he said he wasn't going to. Um, and I think, uh, if nothing else, this teaches us the importance of not just faith, not just saying we believe in Christ, but actually backing up our belief, backing up our expressions with works. 
certainly Christ teaches here, not, if nothing, he teaches faith without works is dead. And so, uh, and so this is uh, an important lesson that we can gather from that. But of course, to the publicans, um, <clears throat> the, uh, sorry, to, to the religious teachers of their time, um, this was truly an insult. In verse 31, he says, uh, he, can, can, he concludes the story by saying that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. So these publicans, the, those that are out uh, collecting taxes, they're the stooges of the, uh, the, the Romans who, who are controlling them. They are looked down upon. These, they're mercenaries who have sold their soul to this evil ruler. And then harlots, who, those who literally sell their bodies. These people who have sold that which is most precious for money will enter into the kingdom of heaven before the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, that was a truly cutting remark to them. It's no wonder they didn't like the Savior, because uh, he s certainly uh, called them out um, and told them uh, where, where they need to improve. Um, and then he follows this with, this, with the parable of the vineyard, um, <clears throat> where uh, he, we have uh, a man who uh, has a vineyard, starting in verse 33, um, he plants a vineyard, he hedges about it, he digs a wine press, he builds a tower, he has this beautiful vineyard. Everything is set up for it to function properly as a vineyard. And then he lends it out to hired hands, to husbandmen. And then he leaves and he goes away, assuming that the husbandmen will run the vineyard, they will get paid uh, their fair share, and while he is the owner of the vineyard, uh, will we'll maintain his rights uh, as the owner. Um, and then as, as the time for, uh, as, as it becomes time to, to harvest the fruit, uh, he sends his servants that he can get his fair portion, uh, and they're refusing to give it to him, to the servants of the master, and they beat him, um, and they even killed another, uh, they stoned another, and then, uh, and then at last he sends a son, saying, surely they will reverence my son, and when they saw the son, they say, this is the heir, let us kill him and take it for ourselves. So you can see how wicked these men truly are. They, they are after something that is not theirs, something that they don't have a right to. And they're willing to murder in order to preserve, uh, in, or in order to try to gain something that is not theirs, even though they temporarily have possession of it. Um, <clears throat> so perhaps there is an important meaning here. There's a lot of things that we are simply borrowing. We're simply borrowing this earth. It's not ours. God created it for us. And who are we to assume that we own this earth? It's the same with the church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not our church. It's his church. We have small stewardships for a time within that church. We have callings and responsibilities. But this is not our church. Same with the priesthood. It's not our power. It's not our authority. It's God's authority. And, same, and of course, same with our bodies, same with our families, same with our life and our time. These are all things that we are borrowing. And to the extent that, to the extent that we try to, uh, to, to personalize them and make them ours, neglecting the truth that they belong to God and he is letting us borrow them. 
we fall into the same trap that these wicked, hus wicked husbandmen fell into. We are trying to claim something that is not ours. And of course, Christ was talking to the Pharisees here, saying that uh, what you guys are claiming, what you guys are doing, you have taken the law of Moses, you have taken the teachings of God, and you've tried to make them yours without forgetting, while forgetting that they are not yours. They are not yours to take over and to control. And of course, as the son of the master comes, Christ himself, and as they kill him in order to preserve their authority, in order to preserve their power, uh, even the Pharisees who hear this story recognize that they have gone too far. And then in verse 44, Christ says, He is the great stone that shall be broken, and whomsoever shall fall, it will grind them to pieces. So here we have Christ himself being the great cornerstone. Some people, as we interact with Christ, we trip over him, we fall, we become broken. We interact with Christ and we recognize our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings. But as long as we're willing to repent, that falling process can be a blessing. Because Christ is with us as we gather ourselves together, as we put ourselves together, and as we become something greater than we were before. But for others, as Christ falls upon us, they don't break, they're ground to powder. And it's impossible to be put back together when we're broken that completely. So as we interact with Christ, as we interact with his teachings and his gospel, do we allow it to break us in a way that we can put ourselves back together and draw closer to him and become something better? Or is it so destructive to us? Is it so different from our lives and from what we want and from what, we're, we're, what we are willing to accept that it grinds us to powder and makes it impossible for us uh, to become better. Um, so let's move on to Matthew chapter 22 from here. Uh, Christ gives another parable. Uh, this time it's the parable of the uh, parable of the marriage feast. And it's similar to the parable of the Great Supper that we read about in Luke 14. But in important ways, it's very different. Um, this, in, uh, in Luke 14, the parable of the marriage feast, it was a certain man. We're not told who it is. But here we are told, this is the king. And what is the feast? It's not just a big supper that's being prepared. It's the marriage of his son. It's the most important event in his son's life. And his son is the future king. So this is more than just a nice feast that has been prepared by a nice rich man. This is the king. And this is the wedding of the future king that we're talking about here. And as they go out, um, if you remember in the, marriage, in the parable of the Great Supper, everyone had these excuses. Someone had just gotten married. Someone had bought a, a, a track a of land. Someone had gotten some new cattle that they had to break in. Here in verse 3, uh, it's actually very simple, though. They would not come. They just refused. No excuses. So he sends more servants. He begs them. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, in verse 4. Everything is ready. Come to this marriage. Please come. It's ready for you. But they made light of it. And they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. They don't care. They have other priorities. They do not care about this king. 
Some of them even took the servants and they slew them. And of course, when the king hears about this, this is interesting, he goes and he destroys them. Those that killed his servants, he takes his retaliation on them. And he burns their, and he destroys those murderers and burns up their cities. So the king will have none of that. And so he's got this big wedding feast ready, and those that were invited refuse to come. So he commands his servants to go into the highways and gather together as many as they can find, both bad and good. Interesting. And the wedding is furnished with guests. The gospel is not only to be preached to the good. The gospel is for everyone, both bad and good. And then as the king is coming to see the guests, he sees a man that did not have the wedding garment on him. Um, somehow, this man uh, made it into the wedding, but he didn't enter through the proper channels. He did not have uh, the garments that were given to everyone as they entered in at the door. So he must have entered into a different door. And uh, as the king asks him about it, he gives him a chance. He even refers to him as friend. Friend, how camest thou in? hither not having a wedding garment but he was speechless he didn't have anything to say and clearly it's because he did not enter through the proper channels and so he is cast out he's bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness in some ways this story teaches us of the importance of entering in that entering into the kingdom entering into the father's feast even though everyone is invited there are certain channels that have to be uh, gone through. There are certain rituals and rites that we need to go through in order to enter into this feast. Uh, and it's concluded with, uh, in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. So everyone is called, everyone is invited, but few are chosen. This is often something we, uh, an expression we frequently talk about in the church. Many are called, but few are chosen, DNC. Uh, 121 is replete with this language. Um, I think as we think about what it means to, uh, to be chosen, uh, we talk about it in a passive voice, as if chosen is something that happens to us. Um, but I think from this context, it's obvious that uh, being chosen is not a, a passive event. We choose to be chosen. We have to make the right choices that qualify us as being chosen. And if we do not make those choices, we are not worthy to enjoy the same blessings as those who are chosen, even though we may be called. Um, so an important and a powerful lesson here is we, as we think about the choices that we make in our lives, certainly we have to receive the proper ordinances. The idea that there's a, a garment or a clothing that has to be donned is, is, is interesting and very meaningful. Uh, but if nothing else, we must go through the proper channels as we draw closer to God. But that's only a part of being chosen, isn't it? We have to uh, make the proper choices. We have to enter into the right covenants. And of course, we have to keep those covenants uh, if we are um, to participate fully uh, in the festivities that God has uh, designed for us. Um, after this, um, <clears throat> they think of several different ways in which they can trap the Savior. Uh, one, they pull out, uh, they, they ask the Savior, uh, 
simply uh, as they think about ways to entangle him. They say, Master, and it's interesting, in verse 16, it's like they're trying to uh, suck up to him. Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. So they're here, they're trying to, uh, to suck up to him, to let him know how wonderful he is before they try to trap him. And this, then comes verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So here's their plan. They if, ask him a difficult question. Should we be giving tribute to Caesar? If he says yes, they'll say, ha-ha, you're not supportive of our Jews, of our rights. Don't you know that Caesar, he's the Romans, and they're, uh, they have us in bondage? And then, of course, if he says no, well, this man is guilty of insurrection, trying to encourage people to rise up against Caesar. Christ responds beautifully. <clears throat> Show me a piece of money. And whose image and whose superscription is on the money? They show him, and they say, it's Caesar's. And he responds, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. Um, I love, uh, in Jesus the Christ, uh, James E. Talmadge has a powerful lesson, powerful uh, conclusion about this lesson. in which he says every human soul is stamped with the image and superscription of God however blurred and indistinct the line may have become through the corrosion of or attrition of sin and as unto Caesar should be rendered the coins upon which his effigy appeared so unto God should be given the souls that bear his image render unto the world the stamped pieces that are made legally current by the insignia of worldly powers and give unto God in his service yourselves the divine, the divine mintage of his eternal realm. Love that. So powerfully. It distinguishes between, this is what Christ is teaching, certain things belong to the world. Participate in the world. Give to worldly leaders that which is due theirs. Obey the laws. Play by the rules. Don't cheat others including the government. Participate in the world and do the best you can there, but never forget that you are not of the world. You are of God. That even though we spend so much time focusing on trying to uh, trying to make it in the world, here I stand even in my own very office uh, where I spend, unfortunately, much more time probably than I do with my family, much more time here than I do anywhere else. The challenge is to never forget that even though we have to participate in this world, that we are not property of this world. Thinking back to the parable of the vineyard, whose property are we? Of course, we are God's. We are his. And for those of us that have entered into sacred covenants with him, those of us that are wearing the wedding garment, how much more so? And how much more our obligation to render unto God that which is God's, to render ourselves, to render our hearts, to render everything that we have to him. Beautiful teaching by the Savior here about the importance of giving ourselves, giving everything that we have to God.
<clears throat> and this is followed uh, the next verses by a question about marriage and it's asked by the Sadducees which is an important thing to remember because the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection and so as they're asking him this question about marriage and the resurrection it's important to remember they don't believe in resurrection to them this is a joke this is the most hilarious ridiculous situation they can think of and to them this is evidence that there is no such thing as a resurrection because how could there be a resurrection when these ridiculous examples exist so they ask a situation you have one wife seven brothers the wife marries the first brother each brother subsequently dies according to the law of moses first brother dies she's supposed to marry the second second dies she marries the third and so on unto the seventh and last of all she dies and so they ask the question in the resurrection verse 28 whose wife shall she be of the seventh and jesus answers them and again it's important he's remembered he's addressing the question of resurrection here you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of god they do not understand the power of god unto the resurrection and it concludes in verse 32 where he asks them the powerful question is god not god is not the god of the dead but of the living if there is no resurrection if we're all just dead why in the world would we need god because god is not the god of the of the dead he's the god of the living it is only because we have eternal life that we need to fear God. But because of the resurrection and because there is a life after this, we had better fear God. Um, and so he catches the Sadducees right here with his testimony that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Um, but, let's, uh, but let's discuss the, uh, the, the question of, uh, of marriage. Because Christ's wording here is his response as, as touching marriage it's a little difficult to comprehend. Verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Um, and so to better understand this, we again turn to uh, Brother Talmadge, <clears throat> Elder Talmadge, in his response in Jesus the Christ, he says, In the resurrection there will be no marrying nor given in marriage, for all questions of marital status must be settled before that time under the authority of the holy priesthood which holds the power to seal in marriage for both time and eternity earlier in the same paragraph he says the lord's meaning was clear that in the resurrected state there can be no question among the seven brothers as to whose wife for eternity the woman shall be since all except the first had married her for the duration of mortal life only and primarily for the purpose of perpetuating immortality the name and family of the brother who first died so according to Elder Talmadge, what Christ is teaching here is there's a distinction between time for marriage for eternity and marriage and temporal marriage, saying that only the first brother married her for eternity under God's law, and the rest were more civil marriages. Now this does lead to difficult questions about, well, what happens to the rest of the brothers, though? Why didn't they get a chance? And then that's not for us to address here. Uh, we're not, certainly not familiar enough with the laws of the time to, to understand exactly um, how that worked. But I think for us, it's important to understand uh, a distinction between civil marriage and eternal marriage. 
Um, and this has uh, become very prevalent even just within the past week uh, as the church has changed its policy. And for those living in the States, you might not be as familiar with it because uh, for, for those who, who live in the States where we're able to perform a civil marriage in the temple, often we conflate the two. But here in Hong Kong, it's always been separated. So Latter-day Saints who get married, get married in the temple in Hong Kong, what they first have to do is go in the morning, go to a civil court, someplace with authority to perform marriages, and they have a simple marriage ceremony. And then later in the afternoon, they go to the temple, not to perform the marriage, because again, the marriage itself, the civil marriage has been done earlier, but to perform the sealing, a separate ordinance. Whereas in the US, the person performing the sealing uh, has the power to also perform a civil marriage. So when my wife and I got married in the Denver temple, that's how we did it. The sealer that performed our wedding also at the same time did the civil marriage. Uh, but the church's new policy uh, says that no longer, as this is the way it used to be, it used to be that if you had the option of getting civilly married in the temple, of having both the civil and the, the civil marriage and the sealing together, you no longer have to do it that way. You now have the option worldwide of splitting it up. And from my point of view, this is a wonderful thing for several reasons. First of all, no more concern, no more instances about uh, family members who for every reason cannot go to the temple being shut out from participating in the civil marriage itself. You're now free to, to have a simple, to have a civil marriage outside of the temple. And then later, whether it be hours later, a few days later, still kind of evolving here, and then later go to the temple to perform the sealing. So I think in this mind, it helps, in, in this way, it helps us in our minds to better distinguish between the civil marriage, which is good and which is wonderful, and the sealing, which is an essential saving ordinance. Uh, and I think the uh, language from the, the church's release on this is, is instructive. It says, regardless of location, the temple ceiling should be the central focus of the marriage and provide the spiritual basis on which the couple begins life together. So regardless of whether you're getting married civilly first and then later go to the ceiling or whether or not you're doing both at once, we need to recognize that it is that ceiling that provides the spiritual eternal basis for our marriage. Um, so I think this distinction is wonderful the church is now making it worldwide because I think it helps us better focus, better recognize that even though marriage is good, it's the sealing within the temple, which is separate from the marriage, which can be separate from the marriage. That is our real goal, and that's where salvation lies. That's where we're able to be, to be bound together for eternity with our eternal companion children are brought into that uh, covenant and it's that covenant sealed by the power of the holy priesthood that creates an eternal family and leads to exaltation and then finally <clears throat> uh, Matthew 22 ends 
uh, with another question. Uh, verse 35, one of them which was a lawyer tempts him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says, famously, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Um, interesting to note that in the Mark account, even the scribe that asked the question admits that the Savior response was true. And he seems to be somewhat sincere uh, in his question. And then Christ ends by asking them a question about Christ, about the Messiah, that they cannot answer. He says, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say, well, he's the son of David. They say, well, if that's true, how come David prayed to him? If it's his son, how come David prayed to him? They can't understand this question. They cannot answer it. Interestingly, uh, afterwards, they say, No man was able to answer him with a word, neither does any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <clears throat> so, uh, that basically ends, in many ways, the public ministry of Christ. He's no more out there answering questions uh, from the scribes and Pharisees. They've heard enough. They know that they need to get rid of this man if they're going to uh, have any future. And so it's from this point that they start um, much more earnestly uh, plotting his demise. Um, John 12, and we'll end with this, um, also provides, uh, I think, a, a nice conclusion um, to, to the reading. Uh, it's a little bit uh, different from the rest of the chapters from the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts that we've been asked to read for this week. Uh, but I think in some ways it sums it up nicely. Remember, Christ is coming here for the feast of the Passover. And for all of the Jewish feasts, they would take these giant lanterns, set them on towers uh, throughout the city, and they would light them at night. And it would provide a marvelous light, a marvelous sight, for anyone that would see Jerusalem. It was lit, lit up for miles, you could see it. And so this is a time in which light, the concept of light, the notion of light, is very prevalent in people's minds. So in John 12, um, <clears throat> he, he testifies himself as being a light. Uh, testifies that uh, he, he would be lifted up, uh, that all men might, uh, might come unto him. He testifies that, uh, <clears throat> uh, that's in verse 32, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me, lifted up as a light, as we are attracted to light, because uh, it is only by being close to that light that uh, our surroundings are illuminated and that we're able to see. Verse 36, while ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of the light. Verse 46, I am come a light into the world, and whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. So here we have Christ, and I think the, the back and forth between the Pharisees uh, perfectly sets up the distinction between the confusion and the darkness the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of their time. 
Comparing that darkness to the light that Christ provides. The clarity, the knowledge, the direction, knowing that the way we are headed is the way of truth and life, and that it will lead us back to the Father. I testify that Christ is the light of the world. He's the light into the world, as it says in verse 46, and the light unto the world, that if we believe in him, we should not abide in darkness, but we will have his light to lead us and guide us. And there is no light other than his light. All light comes from him. What powerful imagery there is with the Savior, with light, with revelation, with knowledge, with understanding. Everything that is good comes from Christ because he is that light. Uh, so I testify that he is the light, and I do so in the name of Jesus Christ.